Generation Church, based in the beautiful Rex Theater in the heart of downtown Pensacola, Florida. Our hope is that today's teaching will encourage and equip you to be firm in faith, to fulfill the call of God in your life, and to finish well. Grab your Bible, open up your notes app, and let's dive in. John 3, 1-15 Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. So my name is Michael Lepine. Um I am not on staff here or a uh, pastor here at Generation, but I have been teaching um, some Bible classes over the past couple years. And I am married to Courtney, who just read our scripture this morning. And we have three little um, awesome, rambunctious boys, Josiah, Jackson, Joel. So before we get, in, get into the word this morning, let's, let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. Um, thank you that we can meet together. Um, and Lord, we give you just this time in your word. Um, Father, I ask that you give me peace to speak and that you, um, Holy Spirit, that you speak through me and that you enlightened this passage for all of us, Lord, this passage that is familiar for a lot of us, um, that, that maybe will we'll come away um, hungering more of you and having a little bit better understanding. In your name, amen. So this morning, we are looking at the story of Nicodemus. And if you have read this passage, you're likely familiar with it. This is a Pharisee, a very high-ranking Pharisee, um, a religious leader of his day, He comes to Jesus at night, and he makes a statement to Jesus. He just starts talking to him. He doesn't ask a question. We'll get to that. But he makes a statement to Jesus. And Jesus, in response, tells him, Nicodemus, if you, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, Israel's teacher, you must be born again. And it's from this passage, right, John 3, that we're looking at, this conversation with Nicodemus, It's from this passage that modern-day evangelical Christians get the term born-again. Okay, we've all heard the term born-again Christian. Um, You know, 
that actually got, got popularized and kind of came into our vernacular in the 30s to the 50s and then ultimately in the 70s is when it kind of got coined as a term here in, in America. Okay, so some of us might have negative reactions to that term born-again Christian. Some might have positive. But regardless of our reactions of, to that term and our kind of perspective on it, our culture, cultural perspective, Jesus tells Nicodemus and tells us as the reader that you must be born again. So what does born again mean? What does it actually mean? And our big idea or our thesis, if we're going to sound a little bit smarter this morning, what we're trying to make a case here for in the next 30, 40 minutes is this. If you see Jesus as a good teacher and Christianity as a moral framework in which to live a better life, you will forever be trapped in the, in the fallacy of moralism. Your moral value system, whether Christian-based or not, cannot save you from the decay and the death of this world and the decay and death within you. We, you, us, must see Jesus not as teacher, as Nicodemus did, but as king. So that's what we're trying to make a case here for. <clears throat> and we're going to do this in three different points, okay? The first point, the fallacy of moralism. That's where we'll start. The fallacy of moralism. Then we're going to go into, okay, well, if our, if our moral works doesn't make us right with God, that's a fallacy. That's what we're going to talk about. Then how do we become born again? That's going to be point two. And then our last point, and the most important, um, is from teacher to king. Okay, the fallacy of moralism, how we become born again from teacher to king. So let's get started. The fallacy of moralism. And we'll start by looking at this man, Nicodemus. Who was he that came to Jesus at night? And it's natural for us to equate, when we, when we read about Pharisees um, in, in the New Testament, it's natural for us to equate Pharisees as kind of like these you know, uh, religious, like half-witted, ancient religious zealots of their day. But that's actually not the case. And this man, Nicodemus, was probably significantly more intelligent than any of us, any of us in this room. See, he's not just a Pharisee, a religious leader and teacher of his day, but he's a member of the Jewish ruling council of the Sanhedrin. Okay, so he's, he is the, the cream of the crop. He is layers up there. And Jesus refers to this man as Israel's teacher. He is, he is at the very top. And not only is he a Pharisee, like I said, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. And he's born a Jew of the Abrahamic lineage, which actually signifies a lot, and we're not going to get into that. But if ever there was a person deserving of salvation based on what they have done, what they've achieved, their moral works, their moral framework... Nicodemus is that person. See, the Pharisees, Nicodemus, based their entire life on their religious works. And it was by those religious works that they judged others, that they judged themselves, that they sought to find favor with God. And ultimately, it was by their works that they, that they sought to achieve good standing with God. They, they sought to achieve salvation with God. So let's pick up in verse 1 and read the first part of this story. <clears throat> verse 1. Now there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said, 
Notice these words, okay? These words are very important. Rabbi, we, he doesn't say I, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can perform these signs that you do unless God is with him. And most of us assume when we read the story of Nicodemus, right, that Nicodemus is this old man, he's a nice old man, and he is sincerely seeking after God, right? That's kind of the assumption that, that you know, we read and that we've been given. And part of that is true, okay? We know that because of the rest of Nicodemus' story in the Bible. But that is not the only dynamic at play here. Many teachers will note that Nicodemus is essentially backdoor politicking here, okay? He's saying, Jesus, we, we see the good things that, we, that you've been doing, not I, we see the good things that you've been doing, and that you're a powerful teacher. Now, Jesus responds to Nicodemus as Israel's teacher. Nicodemus is the top of the top of the top. So what is he saying to Jesus? You're, you're kind of, in a way, an equal as me. You're a teacher, but you're actually less. I am Israel's teacher, right? It's, Nicodemus is, yes, he is, he is coming to Jesus and, and, and questioning, but he is also... He's also politicking. We see that you're a teacher, and we see the works that you've done, and we think we could help each other. Us Pharisees and you, we are all trying to do God's work. There is good things that can happen if we work together. He's feeling Jesus out, trying to get a grid on who Jesus is. And Jesus' Jesus's response is different than many of the responses that we hear of when we're, when we're reading accounts of Jesus in the gospel, Right? Jesus talks to different people differently. The next story is the woman at the well. He talks in a completely different way. The conversational dynamic is completely different than here with Nicodemus. Here, he responds very strongly. Like think about like two maybe scales in your head. Kind of visually picture these numbers in your head. This conversation is um, six total back and forths. Three by Nicodemus, three by Jesus. Nicodemus' first statement Notice, again, it's not a question. He makes a statement to Jesus. His first statement is 29 words. Okay? Jesus' first response, 18 words. Nicodemus' second response goes from 29 down to 23. Jesus' second response goes from 18 to 82. Nicodemus' final response, four words. Jesus' final response 112 words. Picture that dynamic, that conversation in your head. Like, rarely do we see, like, Jesus just, like, ram someone. Like, just mow them over in a conversation. This isn't a conversation. He just, <laughs> just mows over Nicodemus. Why? Why the strong response from loving and gracious Jesus? See, he doesn't engage with Nicodemus's feeling him out and seeing if he and the Pharisees can work together. He addresses Nicodemus directly. And he says, Nicodemus, if you, oh so wise one, if you, oh so moral one, if you, so, oh so accomplished one, if you, Israel's teacher, want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again, Nicodemus. He doesn't say to Nicodemus, look, you have gotten, you've gotten this far. You are Israel's teacher. You, are, you, have, you have done much good for the kingdom. 
you've gotten this far, you've gotten 90%, you need a savior to get the rest of the way. He does not tell Nicodemus or the reader that. He says, no, you must start over and everything you have done, everything you've accomplished in your life counts for nothing. And imagine how insulting and borderline angering this must have been for this man who is likely easily twice Jesus' senior in age. Right? Jesus is around 30-ish when this story happens. This is the beginning of his ministry. Nicodemus is likely in his 70s. Someone half your age, less than half your age, comes to you and says, everything you have given your life for, everything you've accomplished, it counts for nothing. What is Jesus doing here? Why such the strong response to this man? Why such a strong response? And we also notice that had, had Nicodemus only been coming and sincere, like sincerely searching, there likely wouldn't have been this strong of a response. So why such a strong response? See, Jesus is challenging Nicodemus's in our morality and religion. I love what Tim Keller says about this. Jesus' call to the new birth, to being born again, isn't a calling to more morality and religion. It's a challenge to morality and religion. And it's easy for us to sit here and just kind of look at Nicodemus and do a little five-minute character study on this, on this guy and move on. But do we not operate oftentimes with this same fallacy of moralism that Nicodemus and the Pharisees do? Whether you are a Christian or not, I would hope that maybe there's some non-Christians or skeptics in here today. Whether you're a Christian or not, I would say that, that we all, or most of us, operate in this fallacy. For the Christian, many of us, I'll be the first to line up here, we subconsciously see our standing, our standing with God and our acceptance with God based on our works, our kindness to others, our helping of the poor, our truthfulness and honesty and integrity, our sexual purity and chastity, our good theology, our church involvement, how we manage, how we spend, how we give our money, or other moral works, and we all, we're all different, we all hang our hat on certain moral works, right? For many different reasons, many different variables. We all hang our hat on certain works and we elevate, hey, if I, if I do this, God smiles. If I don't do this, God frowns, right? We might not consciously say that, but subconsciously, we can often think and live that way. These things subconsciously determine our standing with God often on a day-by-day -day basis. And how exhausting, how exhausting is that? And that's the fallacy of moralism. And what, what I'm not saying here and what the gospel does not say is that it doesn't matter right or wrong, just do what you want. That is not, that is not the point, and that is not what Jesus says. That's not what we're saying this morning. But for us to base our standing, our rightness with God, on our acts is a complete fallacy, and it is, we've missed the point of the gospel if that's the case. Okay, so that's, if we're Christians, right? We often subconsciously, you know, base our standing with God on our acts. Well, what if, what if you're a skeptic? And you're like, okay, I'm not a Christian, so I'm not really in the boat as Nicodemus. I would argue that you're still likely in the same boat as Nicodemus. You might not see Jesus as a king, 
as your king, as your savior, as the true son of God, you might see him as a historical figure, right? We all know he's a historical figure and he was a good teacher. He'd teach, I'll give you that Jesus had some good teachings, that the world would be a little bit better place if they followed not all, but most of Jesus' teachings, right? And you might operate in kind of the, this, the general assumption, something like this. Look, if there is a God, and if that God is the God of the Bible, and I'm not convinced that there is, then that God would see that I'm a decent, that I'm a moral person. I'm not a Hitler, or in modern speak, I'm not a Jeffrey Epstein. I help people, I work hard, I'm nice, I help the poor, I'm honest. I overall contribute to the good of my community, right? I'm not a liability to humanity. And if there is some cosmic reward at the end of a rainbow, as you Christians claim, Surely I will get there whether I claim to believe in Jesus or not, because if I play Pascal's wager and there is a God, he's going to see at, at when everything's said and done and the song is written, he's going to see that I am just as moral of a person as the Christians around me. And I would say to you, well played. You're right. You probably are just as moral as the Christians around you. But you fall into the same fallacy of moralism that the Christian does. Because if we are making the assumption that the God of the Bible is the true God, and we Christians, of course, are making that assumption. Here's what that God says about our moralism. And there's tons of, there's tons of scripture on this. I'm just cherry-picking a few. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Isaiah 64 all of us have become like one who is unclean or diseased. And all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And that is a very gruesome image, actually, the, the meaning of that verse. Last, uh, we're reading in John 3, right? The, the story of Nicodemus is here in John 3. Just go to the very last two uh, verses of John 2, right above this story of Nicodemus. It says this. <clears throat> now, while he, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival. Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. So there's great things happening. Jesus is doing, doing amazing things, and many people are coming and believing, and good things are happening. People are following Jesus. What is Jesus' response? But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. What an indictment that is for everyone. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. The Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. It's the inverse of the, of the fallacy of moralism. The Christian does not think that God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Okay, so Jesus challenges our fallacy of moralism, right? And says, you must be born again. So we've spent just a few minutes kind of looking at the idea that all of my good works count for attribute nothing and, and contribute nothing into the saving of myself. To my entering the kingdom of heaven, all of my good works summed up contribute literally 0% of the equation, okay? That's the fallacy of moralism. And Jesus tells Nicodemus so strongly, 
Your moralism doesn't work. You must be born again, and you must start over. So what does he mean? Let's get into point two, how we become born again. So let's pick up in verse three. Um, we'll read three, four, five. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you. Again, he's talking to Nicodemus here. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Interesting, of water and the spirit. I wonder what he means. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And here he gives an analogy of water. You must be born again, Nicodemus. You must be born of water. And there's a double meaning here. The first is very obvious. It's a physical birth. Physical birth of the womb, that water in the womb. You come out of you know, your mother's womb, out of that water. And on a side note that we're not going to dig into right now, but it's worth thinking about later. Take note, about how, take note of how much we contribute to our own birth and existence. So Jesus is giving this double meaning, a physical meaning of water and then a, a deeper spiritual meaning. And he points to the Old Testament when he's talking here. Okay? He's pointing to Ezekiel 36, and it says this in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And so, now we're brushing it off a little bit. What does it mean to be born again? Okay, we're starting to see a little bit clearly. Jesus is very clear here. It says, I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I kind of picture like this, laying on an operating table, and a surgery happening. A, a amazing, beautiful, yet at the same time, terrifying and gruesome surgery that's happening. And God cuts open and takes what's dead and pulls out a heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh. There's a vivid imagery here in Ezekiel 36. Okay, so now we're starting to understand. Okay, that's what, me, that, that's what it means to be born again. God takes what's dead and puts in new life. Cool. All right, how does that happen though? Because it's clear we humans don't have the capacity to do it ourselves. We don't have the capacity to operate on ourselves and take out what's dead and put in what's new. So Jesus tells us how. He follows up with this in his conversation with Nicodemus, and he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And this verse is kind of the linchpin of this entire sermon. And before we talk about this verse, okay, um, I just want to take a short detour. So Jesus refers to Ezekiel 36 when he's talking about water. And then here, 
right? He's talking, he's referring back to Numbers 21. Okay, and we're going to read that in a minute. But this time in Numbers 21, it's a little bit more of a difficult, frightening, and maybe for some people intellectually challenging uh, passage in the Old Testament, at least at face value until you understand the context. In this passage, God sends snakes into the camp of the Israelites. They have rebelled against God. He sends snakes into the camp of the Israelites, and many people die. And so if you've read through the Bible, you'll, don't, you'll no doubt have come across hard passages, right? Offensive, maybe, or difficult to, difficult to believe, like, did Jonah really get swallowed in the belly of a whale? And live for three days? Did Moses really separate the Red Sea? Right? Surely those must be allegories. And this is also a common modern day argument against Christianity. How could a good and all powerful God not only let, but in some cases condone, some of the, again, I'm going to put it in quotes, atrocities that are recorded in the Old Testament? These are hard things, and I don't have easy, pat answers. Right? I can't fully answer all that. But here's a li- here's, I just want to highlight three things to consider. Okay, when we're, we're, we're just on a little side note here. Three things to consider when you are reading the Bible, whether you're a Christian or a skeptic, it doesn't matter. When you read the Bible and you find something that is offensive or difficult to believe, let's, I just, the hope is that we just, these three things will at least help us to pause a little bit. The first, keep in mind that we are reading from a modern Western perspective. And there are many things that we find in the Bible that are offensive that other cultures and people groups do not find offensive. So what makes your subjective view of what's offensive right and theirs wrong? We have to ask ourselves that. Because your view and my view of what's right and what's comfortable in the Bible, other people around the world and other cultures do not hold that view. So why is my subjective view about what's good and what's bad in the Bible the correct one? And the opposite. There are things that our culture, teachings of Jesus in the Bible that we see as, those are great. I am all for that. That other cultures and people groups find not only offensive, but as grounds for rejecting Christianity. And I have read, I've read, read a couple of these kind of stories. Case in point, the biblical teaching to, uh, to unconditionally forgive and love your enemies. Right? Most of us in this room be like, yeah, that's a great teaching. If the world did that, it'd be a better place. There are other people groups in the world that might have faced genocide or generational wars and conflicts with other people groups and their families are murdered and they find that teaching of unconditional forgiveness as not only offensive but grounds I reject Christianity on that why is our western perspective the right one so keep in mind that we have a subjective view and a subjective lens when we read things that should at least slow us down in our critique and our judgment Okay, so that's the first thing the second thing is when you're reading hard things, read deeper. There's no shortage of scholarship and good commentary 
on every single word in the Bible. People have given their lives to understanding one tiny passage. Read deeper. And the third is know that Jesus and the entire New Testament affirm the Old Testament from cover to cover. We don't have a vindictive, mean, angry Old Testament God and a nice, loving, gracious New Testament God. We have one God. We have one God, and he is the same. And you and me and I, all of us must wrestle. We must wrestle with the parts that, that, are, that are hard for us. You cannot be a Christian and follow Jesus, and as some people have tried to um, teach, unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. That is, that is impossible because Jesus doesn't, so we can't. Okay, so those three things, that's a short little detour on reading hard things in the Bible. So let's go to this passage. Jesus tells Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And he's referring to Numbers 21. Okay, this is what it says. The Israelites traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food, the food that God had given them. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. Man, that's hard to read. Until you... We're not going to... We're not going to you know, dissect this passage, but go dissect it on, on your own time. Difficult to read at face, at face value, is it not? The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. So in this story, God gives the antidote to the poisonous, deadly snakes in an odd way. He tells Moses to make an idol-like thing of that which is killing them. Right? You would think that if you're writing this story you would think that he would tell Moses to make an idol of like, or, or an image of like a heart or a cross or something. <laughs> make an image of that which is killing you. And this is a more powerful image than we might realize. See, the image of the snake is across most cultures. For as long as history is recorded, the image of darkness and evil. And so it is with Christianity. It's the, sa- it's, it's the serpent, it's the snake who comes in the Garden of Eden, right? And it's through that snake that all darkness, all evil, all pain, all suffering, all sickness, ultimately all death, come into the story of humanity. It's through the snake that the curse happens. And it's snakes that are killing the Israelites. And so what is Jesus actually saying to Nicodemus, when he says, what does he say again? He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, 
so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, reader, the snake from the beginning in the Garden of Eden that Numbers 21 points back to and Numbers 21 points towards Jesus' work, okay? The snake in the Garden of Eden that represents all evil, all sin, all suffering, all pain, all death, I will become. I will take on that judgment. And that's a, that's a hard image to think about, but that is the image that Jesus is giving Nicodemus. And all you need to do, Nicodemus, reader, Israelites, is look up. Look up at the image of that pole and believe, and you will be saved. And you might be thinking, like, whoa, did that guy just say, like, Jesus becomes a snake? Like, no, I'm not going to go so far as to say that. But there is way deeper symbolism here and way deeper meaning than I could pretend to understand. And what I can say is this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. For our sake, he made him, for our sake, God made Jesus, not to be the image of sin, not to take on your sins. What does it say? To be sin. It's not just Jesus died on the cross for your sins. God did not forsake his son on the cross because Jesus is just dying for your sins. Jesus becomes sin. And that is what he's telling Nicodemus in the story. That is the extreme image that he is giving Nicodemus. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a strong image. That is a very, very, very strong image that he's telling Nicodemus. So, how do we become saved? How do we become born again? We look up and we believe, just as the Israelites had to do. The Israelites had to come to two conclusions to look up. One is, I need saving. I need saving. There are snakes in the camp, and I need saving. I can't save myself. Right? They came to those two conclusions. That takes humility. And we must come to that conclusion. I need saving. I know, I know that. I know I need saving, and I also know I can't save myself. We look up, and we believe. And we believe that Jesus, our maker, our savior, is the only... It's the only being, it's the only object, it's the only moral framework, it's the only belief system, anything in, in the universe that even has the capacity to do the saving that we so desperately need. And in that process of looking up and believing, right, that process of looking up and believing, those words in Ezekiel actually start to come true. Like Jesus' words about being born of water and the Spirit, they actually start to come true. Where it says, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So how, how do we get onto the operating table? <laughs> you look up and you believe. Final point. I hope I'm not going too long. I don't know how long I am in this. So I don't know if it's 15 minutes or 50 <coughs> minutes. But final point, from teacher to king. So the rest of Nicodemus' story... So this, this passage happens in, in, um, in John 3, okay? So this is at the beginning of Jesus' three-ish 
year time on earth, right? Fast forward a few chapters. Nicodemus is still a Pharisee. Um, the Pharisees are trying to arrest, excuse me, arrest Jesus. And uh, Nicodemus is still a Pharisee, and he doesn't, like, defend Jesus. Go to John 7 if you want to read about it. He doesn't defend Jesus. He just tries to bring a little bit of calm and rationale to the situation with the Pharisees. But he's still a Pharisee. He's not been born again. Then, the final account of Nicodemus. Jesus is crucified, and he's dead on the cross. And who does the handling, the nasty handling of the body? Picture, we're not going to go through all the steps, and I wouldn't know all the steps anyways, but picture all the steps in your head from seeing, just seeing a cross with a bleeding dead body and handling all of that, all of the steps, getting the cross off, taking the nails out, all of those steps, bringing the body away, preparing the body, and then burying the body. Who did that? Two Pharisees. It's interesting. The Pharisees who condemned Jesus as a criminal, the Pharisees who killed Jesus, two of their own are the people who handle the body. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. On a side note, um, Nicodemus purchased 75 pounds of myrrh, and myrrh was a very expensive exotic spice that had to be imported. It was used for a different variety of things. One was a, was a drying agent for handling a dead body. He purchased 75 pounds, which is like an absurd amount. One commentary says, <laughs> it's a beautiful, um, it was enough spice to bury a king royally. That says a lot, actually. Another interesting thing here is that the handling of dead bodies was done by women. Women were seen as second-class citizens in that culture, in that day and age. It was not men who handled dead bodies. <laughs> and you can think about the dynamic here. It's the Pharisees who sentenced this, this person to be killed. And it is, a, it is not just not a woman, it's not just not a man, but it's a Pharisee who publicly handles that dead body. And it's not just a Pharisee. It's a Sanhedrin. It's Israel's teacher. What, what would cause this extreme of like a turn of events where this man goes from being a Pharisee to a clear public denunciation of his Pharisee life and his entire life and a clear line in the sand, right? This is public a clear line in the sand, this person is not just a teacher that we just killed. What changed in those three years? What changed from that conversation with Jesus to seeing Jesus hanging and crucified on a cross? What changed with this man, Nicodemus? He thought, and he thought, and he thought, and he thought, and he wrestled, and he pondered, and he thought, and he thought, and he thought. And for years, he thought, and he wrestled, and he pondered that conversation with Jesus. And see, sometimes we do have, some people do have that born-again experience where it's a mountaintop, high emotional, memorable, ecstatic experience. But oftentimes... It's like Nicodemus. 
and you think and you think and you think and you wrestle with the words of Jesus and you think and you ponder and you wrestle until one day, one day, something changes. And that day happened when Jesus was crucified for Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, just like the Israelites, Nicodemus remembers remembers Numbers 21. He's Israel's teacher. He knows all the scripture. He knows the Torah. He knows the scripture. He remembers that conversation with Jesus. And he thinks back about Numbers 21 and everything connects. Just as Moses lifted up the snake, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he sees not the teacher, but the Son of Man lifted up. And he looks up and he believes. He's no longer a teacher at that moment. He is his Savior. One of my favorite, we're almost done. Um, Brian, you can come up. One of my favorite uh, songs, at least lyrically, it's not a great song musically, but one of my favorite songs lyrically, I listen to it way too often, I have for years. Um, It's a song by the original Newsboys back in the early to mid-90s, and it's a song called Lost the Plot. And the, uh, the bridge says this, when I saw you for the first time, you were hanging with a thief, and I knew my hands were dirty, and I dropped my gaze, and you said I was forgiven, and you welcomed me with laughter. I was happy ever after. I was counting the days when you'd come back again. And see, if you approach Jesus as a teacher, as Nicodemus did, you will forever be in that trap, in that oppression of moralism. You cannot save yourself. There's nothing you could do to contribute to your own saving. But once, once we see Jesus lifted up and we look and believe, he goes from being seen as our teacher and Christianity as just a good moral framework to live a better life. It changes to seeing him as a teacher, as king, as the son of God. What a weight lifted off of us that it's his work. It's not our work. It's not our work that does it. It's his work. What a weight lifted off. What a light burden. C.S. Lewis says this. I have this one um, little, well, longer quote and then uh, one passage of scripture and then we'll close out. C.S. Lewis says this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left us open to that. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. In closing, we'll finish with the last few verses. Uh, John 3, 1 through 15 is this passage that we just went through a little bit with the story of Nicodemus. And then there's John, the rest of John 3, 16 through 21. Um, 
Some people say this is Jesus speaking. Some people say this was John commentating. Regardless, this is right after this conversation with, with Jesus and Nicodemus. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. <clears throat> this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, and just thank you, Lord, that you uh, just, all the different stories in the Gospels of you interacting with people, you respond differently to people. You respond strongly to Nicodemus and gently to the woman at the well right after this story. Lord, you see us where we are and you see the idols on our heart and you, you speak to those. God, come into our heart and fill us and help us to, 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 to look and believe on your work more on a daily basis. Not that we would just see salvation as just a one-time set and forget, but that we would look and believe. We love you. Amen. Thanks for hanging out with us at Generation. You can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Generation Pensacola or go to the website at generationpensacola.com and from wherever you download your podcasts. If today's teaching impacted you, we'd love to hear about it. So please drop us a note.